A reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, Matthew chapter 1. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abinijah. Abinijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Joram. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Achim. Achim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathen. Mathen fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. Several years ago, uh, we were trying to find out a little bit more information about the great Chesley name. We were trying to find out some uh, things about our heritage. And uh, to do that, you, know, you have to have a pretty good amount of information. And uh, we didn't really have that much info uh, beyond my grandfather, my dad's dad. And even with him, uh, as we were looking into things, we realized how little we actually knew about him and how little information we had on him. Uh, and it actually came about that as we were looking through things and comparing notes and gathering information, uh, we realized through my grandmother that he actually had had an entirely different family before uh, my dad and my aunt Diane, his sister. Whole different family uh, in a different state. And then we found out that um, he lied about his age. He forged his birth certificate. And so we didn't even really understand when he was born or how old he actually was. And so we began to kind of get a little concerned about this. And then that led way to coming up with kind of uh, fun, entertaining stories and possibilities and kind of the whole mythology about this man that, that I knew as Grandpa, Grandpa Chesley, that uh, we really ended up finding out that we knew very little about. And so uh, as, as time went on, um, anytime there were 
accidents or things that happened that we didn't want to happen or things we wanted to happen that didn't, you know, life. Uh, we started saying, oh, see, this is what it is. It's the Chesley curse. It's all Grandpa Chesley's fault because he's probably like wanted by the FBI. He's probably some international spy. He's probably, you know, a really bad guy with this whole secret life. And now we're paying for it. And we just kind of came up with that. But all of that, all that to say, we were very shocked and surprised as we began looking into our family tree, trying to find out some information. The information we found was surprising, and it even kept us from finding out more. And maybe, maybe some of you can relate. Maybe you've tried the whole Ancestry.com thing. You've tried to piece together your family tree, and as you did that, maybe you were shocked. Maybe you were surprised by what you found. That certainly is the case when it comes to Christ's family tree, which was so wonderfully read by Kevin Traub. Thank you for doing that for us this morning. And in his genealogy, my goodness, we see a lot of uh, evidence of people that are shocking and surprising in how they went about life and some of the choices they made, some of the decisions they made. There's, there's a lot of uh, baggage there in Christ's genealogy. And if you are a student of the Bible in any way, you don't even have to be a, a big scholar, familiar at all, you probably recognize some of those names as Kevin read, and you're thinking, oh, that's a bad dude, oh, that's a bad dude over there. And that's the, that's the way it is. That's the case in his genealogy. And as we come to Christmas time, we know that uh, the Christmas story is going to be read, and we're going to hear it and see it in different places. And as we even have our own devotional time, maybe you do Advent readings or something like that, um, our tendency is to brush past Matthew 1 and go right into the account of what we know as the Christmas story, or, or brush past it and go right into Luke 2 uh, with the Nativity. And we, we typically do that each year. But if we do that, we're actually causing ourselves a great disservice because there is a lot in the genealogy of Christ that we just heard read. And yeah, it's a lot of names, as you heard. Uh, Kevin's mouth is probably pretty dry now because it's a lot of names, a lot of different pronunciation, and a lot of just repetitive uh, fact. But there's a lot in there. There's a lot that it teaches us. There's a lot that it shows us. There's a lot that God wants us to be reminded of in that genealogy. And that's the purpose of genealogies. It's to remind you of things. It's to remind you what has come before what is in front of you. It's to remind you of where you've been. It's to remind you of what has contributed and come together to make you and your situation what it is. And so there's a lot that I want us to take away from what we typically brush past or breeze through. And there's a couple things in particular that the genealogy of Christ shows us in Matthew 1. First of all, Christ's genealogy in Matthew 1 shows us a faithful God that keeps his promises. A faithful God that keeps his promises. And the examples are right there in the genealogy itself. Um, you heard about Abraham and you heard about David. Uh, those are great examples of God keeping his promise because to Abraham he said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And he showed up when, uh, I love what the scripture says about him, when he was almost dead. He, he was as good as dead. 
And that's when God showed up and gave him this promise that from you, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. And not only are you going to be a great nation, but all the people of earth will be blessed because of you. And he was speaking about the Messiah that was going to come through Abraham, through the child of promise, through Isaac and his lineage. Then to David, as he put David on the throne, he said to David, you will always have a man on the throne. I will always keep someone from your lineage reigning over the house of Israel. And through you, David, there will come my servant who will reign forever. And your kingdom, not just your kingdom, but the kingdom will be established through you. So we see promise after promise and and none greater than what was given to Abraham and David. And then we see the faithfulness to the whole nation of Israel, that the messianic line that was promised continued all through Israel despite their being put into exile, despite their being put into captivity. We see the faithfulness of God on display. We see a God that keeps his promises. And the thing about that that's so important for us to remember, and the thing that's so beautiful about his faithfulness and his promise keeping, is that God's faithfulness to us isn't based on our level of faithfulness to him. Isn't that good news? I mean, if if that weren't the case, we would all be in a lot of trouble. Because on our best day, we're not nearly as faithful to God as we should be, or as he deserves. And on our best day, our keeping of promises will end up coming up short when it comes to God. You know, we'll never be able to keep enough promises. So if his faithfulness to us and his keeping promises to us and his goodness to us was all based on how we responded to him, how we treated him, on our goodness to him and being good enough, none of us would have any hope of ever knowing his love or his favor or being in his good grace. So I'm very thankful, and I I hope you are too, that God's faithfulness to us isn't based on our level of faithfulness to him. And certainly the people in the genealogy show that as well. The second major thing that this genealogy shows us and teaches us and reminds us about is that it shows God working through fallen people to accomplish his perfect plan. That's also really good news, right? And unlike what we might be tempted to do, If we were to put together a genealogy, if we were to put together a family record, um, God didn't leave out the embarrassing parts. God didn't leave out the controversies. God didn't edit and omit the shocking examples in his son's genealogy. He left them there. I mean, let's, let's go back to it. There's Abraham, who was a liar, a big liar. Twice, at least, when he was in a, in a place of potential trouble when he was coming through different lands and he recognized that these people uh, were people to be taken seriously. He had the Canaanites, he had the Egyptians, and he has his wife who, despite her age, was apparently incredibly beautiful. And he said, look, we're going through these godless Nations, we're going through these people that are, that are pagan, have no fear of God in this place, and they're going to see you, and you're beautiful, so beautiful that they probably have never seen anyone as beautiful as you, despite your age, and what they're going to do is they're going to kill me and take you for their, their wife. So here's what I want you to do. 
if anybody asks, I want you to just say that you're my sister, which was kind of a half truth, but let's be honest, a half truth is still a full lie, right? And so he said, that's, that's what I want you to do. Tell them you're my sister so that I will come out ahead. So, I mean, not only is he a liar, but he's not exactly the greatest husband. He's not getting the husband of the year award here. So that's what Abraham did twice, not just once, but twice. Neither time worked out very good for him. Uh, it put him in, in quite the uh, embarrassing predicament. But you have Abraham, who's that way. Then you have, let's go forward in the genealogy, you have David, who, yes, is a great king, the psalmist of Israel, but he's also an adulterer and a murderer. He saw Bathsheba, which was mentioned as the mother of Solomon, the wife of Uriah. That was Bathsheba, who was bathing, bathing Bathsheba. And he saw her, he lusted after her, he acted on the lust, he abused his, his power, so he manipulated his kingly power. He took her, slept with her, uh, sent her back to the husband when, he, when the husband was unwilling to come and enjoy being home and sleep with his wife so that he could pin the, the impending pregnancy on him. When that didn't work out, he said, okay, I've just got to get rid of this guy who was his close friend, so he had him killed, assassinated. So we've got David, an adulterer and a murderer. Then there's Jacob, backing up a bit. Jacob was a con artist and a thief, such that would make any Vegas bookie really proud. I mean, he was the master manipulator. Stole his brother's birthright right out from under him. Did all sorts of conniving things. Not exactly the most quality of, of people. You have uh, Judah and Tamar mentioned in the genealogy. And that, wow, that is a story so scandalous it sounds like a supermarket tabloid. Uh, you can read about that on your own time, Genesis 38. And uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty shocking. Um, you have Rahab mentioned in the genealogy. A Canaanite prostitute. You have Ahaz and Manasseh mentioned, and those were two of the most shockingly wicked kings in Israel's history. So yeah, there were, there were good people mentioned in the, in the genealogy too. You had Hezekiah, you had Josiah, amazing kings that brought about uh, powerful reforms. You had Boaz, who uh, was kind to Ruth, a Gentile. So you had good parts in there too, but man, you had a lot of bad characters in this genealogy. Why include all those characters in the, in the list for everyone to read about through the ages? Why do that? Why not just omit those things like we would? Well, because like the incredibly popular current TV show, This Is Us, you know what I'm talking about. This Is Us, yep, yeah, mm-hmm. And it's not just ladies. Come on, guys. I know some of you watch that. I know it. It's all right. You can be man enough to admit it. Well, just like This Is Us, the title of that show, This Is Us. This genealogy, this list, it's all of us. This is our story, all of our story. We're all fallen people. We're all in need of radical incomprehensible grace. We're just as manipulative as Jacob is. We're just as self-centered as Abraham. We can be just as lustful as David. 
we can be just as absolutely astoundingly wicked as Ahaz or Manasseh. And we prostitute ourselves just like Rahab did every time we choose sin over God. Every time we choose to live for self instead of the Savior, we're just like her. So we're really no better, speaking of our humanity in the flesh, as any of these people are. All the people listed in the genealogy that Kevin read for us, they needed the Savior that came through their family lines. They needed the Savior that came through their lines. And God miraculously worked through them in spite of their brokenness to bring the Savior into the world. I mean, think about how amazing that is. You've got all these these characters that were so depraved and so fallen and and just so horrible in so much of, of how they were and what they did and what they chose, and yet God miraculously worked through them. And brought the Savior through them into the world. The Savior they needed, the Savior we need. And he did it all not through perfect people, but through very, very fallen people, very broken people. And that's really good news for us. The fact that surrounds this list. That that God doesn't work through us because we're worthy. God works through us in spite of our unworthiness. That's very, very good news. Because none of us are anything but unworthy. We are extremely unworthy. We are eternally unworthy of God's grace, even in the slightest measure. We're always going to be unworthy of His favor and of His love. We're always going to be unworthy of His acceptance of us into His kingdom and into His family, into His plan. We're always going to be unworthy of the salvation that we've been able to embrace. And we're always going to be unworthy of Him using us in any way to accomplish anything good in this world. But He works through us as He did them in spite of of our unworthiness. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 is, is an incredible passage, and it's really just as much a Christmas passage as any of the Christmas passages we look at. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, in other words, when it was the right time, when, when all that God had planned ahead of time came to completion, that's what that, that means, God sent forth His Son, His eternal, perfect, fully divine Son, born of woman, born under the law, which all of that genealogy and and the one in Luke that is actually Mary's show us, they were all humans under the law. What law? The law of sin, the law of death. That's the law that everyone in that list was under. It's the law that everyone today is under. And he sent his son, born of woman, born under that law, to redeem those who were under the law. Like I said, everybody on that list, everybody in those lines, they needed the Savior that was coming through them. To redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. That was why... Jesus came through 
the human lines. The ultimate goal of that, the ultimate purpose was to redeem all those that were fallen, all those who were in desperate need of him as Savior, and to give them the adoption as sons and daughters of God that only Jesus could provide. See, not only does God work through us in spite of our unworthiness, he loves us even though we are horribly unlovely. And he, the high king of heaven, calls us to himself, making sinners his daughters and sons. Isn't that spectacular? What we see on display, verse after verse in Christ's genealogy, is God's grace. It's grace that is greater than all our sin. What we see in the genealogy is the gospel. That's on every line, through every example of people in Christ's human line and and the ancestry lines of the Messiah. It's the gospel. And church, the gospel, we need to make it, we need to not make it any more uh, complicated than, than it has to be. It's, it's actually a very simple reality. The gospel, in its essence, at its heart, is the true story of God rescuing imperfect people and making them family. That's the gospel. When, when someone asks you, what is the gospel? Or when you're trying to explain the gospel and you refer to it or you talk about it, and they say, what do you mean by the gospel? Just keep it simple. It's the true story of the perfect God of all of eternity, of our, over all the universe, rescuing very imperfect people and making them his family. That's the gospel. And it's all done through Jesus. And, and it all came about the avenue through which that happened was through generation after generation of fallen, sinful, broken, rebellious people. At the beginning of humanity's story, there was a tree that wasn't resisted, which resulted in mankind's sin and fall from fellowship with God. And that condition gets passed down generation after generation, and it's willingly embraced by everyone generation after generation. See, that's the family tree we're all part of. We're all part of that original tree. The tree that wasn't resisted. The tree of, of sin. The tree that ended up resulting in a curse on every one of us from our original parents. And there's no escaping it on our own. No amount of trying to avoid it. No amount of trying to reform ourselves. No amount of ignoring it is going to make that reality go away. That we're part of that family tree. We're under it. The good news though. The really good news. The ultimate good news. Is that there is another tree. That was introduced into humanity's story. And that's the tree that the Savior willingly hung on without resistance, which resulted in the payment for man's forgiveness 
from the sin that they embraced, that we embraced through Adam and Eve and that we embrace today. It was the payment for man's forgiveness from sin and, and the payment for restored fellowship with God, the fellowship that was broken as a result of that original tree. And when we run to that tree, that second tree, when we give our lives to the one that gave up his life on it, on that tree, we are placed under a new family tree. And it's a tree with branches of mercy and grace and redemption and righteousness instead of sin and judgment and wrath and and eternal despair. It's the tree of faith. It's a tree of faith that's rooted in Christ. And all who are part of it, that that faith in Christ and part of this new family tree, they're part of the eternal family of God. Galatians 3.11 says this, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. It's obvious. It's evident. No one in, in any part of history has been able to do that. They've, they've never been able to keep the law enough to merit justification before God. It's never going to happen. The law only, we see in Romans, only serves to show us how we're never going to measure up. The law exists to point us to our need of someone to rescue us from out from under the law because we can't do it ourselves. We can't keep it. So it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For, or so that means, the righteous, those that are truly righteous, shall or will live by faith. And by faith, not just open general faith in something or someone, but by faith in Jesus Christ. And all who came before Christ, all those people in that that genealogy, And all those who were examples of righteousness, like Abraham and Moses and David and Josiah and and on and on the list goes of people who, who were righteous. All those people had to look ahead at the promised and coming Messiah. They had to believe God's word, that he was going to send them the ultimate redeemer. And they had to agree with that and say, yes, I believe that. And I believe that you're going to keep your promises. I believe that you are a faithful God. And when that happened, the scripture says that that it was credited to them as righteousness. And that credit was only fully realized in the person of Christ. And then all those living after Christ, which includes you and me, we look back on the person and the work of Christ. So it's in Christ, the center point of both sides of history... That faith is fully realized. That hope is fully realized. That salvation is known. That life is able to be grabbed onto. And so what you see is you have all these thousands and thousands of years of people that lived before Christ, that looked forward to Him. You have all these people before us, after Christ, and and us, us today and those after us, who look back to Him. And we're all joined together around Him. And we all become this great, beautiful family of God. This glorious new family tree that that really covers over the original family tree. The one that's full of darkness and shadow and sin. The new family tree of salvation and 
joy and glory is what we have the ability to be grafted onto. And that's what we can hold up. And that's what we can embrace all through Christ and only through Christ. So my question for you today, it's, it's actually very simple. Which family tree are you truly part of? Have you ever made the jump from the original family tree, the, the one of Adam and Eve, the, the one that all humans are part of by birth and by willing choice, the, the family tree that's rooted in sin and death? It's what we're all born into. We're all part of that naturally. But when you come to Christ, what's written over your family tree is no longer fallen sinful, judged, doomed, all that gets erased. And in place of it, it gets, gets written accepted, loved, favored, called, made new, mine. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's available to each of us. So my question is, have you come to that that new tree, that second tree, the tree that your Savior hung on for you to give you access to the new family tree? Have you come to that tree and embraced it? Have you given your life to the one that gave his life for you on that tree? Have you ever done that at any point in your life? If you have, then you're a new creation. And your, your task now, and my task, our calling, is to go out and proclaim that that can be true of anyone else as well. We proclaim that to everybody we come in contact with, boldly, with love and with grace, but with courage and with truth. If you're here today... There is no better time, there's, there's no better chance if you're here today and you haven't done that than to start off your brand new life right now. There's, there's absolutely no point in waiting to do that later. You may not have later. And what better way to kick off the Christmas season, which is all about Christ coming to redeem us, than to actually give yourself completely, finally, to him. To embrace that Savior for yourself. And for you that have church, you've already done that. Be in awe, again, of the fact that you're able to be called the sons and daughters of the Most High God. Be in awe that, that you, who are just every bit as much of a sinner as every person listed in that genealogy that you had read to you at the beginning have the ability, not in anything you possess, but all because of the grace of God, to know him not as judge, but to know him as daddy. That you have the ability to know with absolute certainty that if you were to close your eyes in this life, the moment that happens, you open them in the glory of eternity. Be in awe at that. And let that awe Build and build and build and let it 
result in not being able to keep it silent. We're going to be looking as we start this Christmas series in a week and throughout the series, we're going to be looking at the people who who couldn't do that. They couldn't keep to themselves what they were witnessing God doing. As they saw the final promise fulfilled in the person of Jesus and they saw the Messiah, they couldn't keep it to themselves and they went out and they just told everybody. And the same should be true of you and me today. May it be so. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the genealogy of your son. Father, keep that from being dry or empty or boring to us in our minds and our thinking. May it not be in any way. May it be beautiful and full of hope and promise and light and glory. May we see grace line after line as we read it, as we think about it. May we see the gospel in each example of the people that your son came through. May may remind us of our own condition apart from Christ, and may it cause us to rejoice in our new condition in and through Christ. Oh, Father, if there is anyone here, whether they're 90 or 9, whether they've been here for decades or this is their first time here, and they do not know your Son personally as their Savior and Lord, may today, this moment, be the time of their salvation, the time of their new life, the time that they are taken from the the original family tree and brought over into the new family tree that is rooted in your Son. And for those of us who have already experienced that, thank you. May we be in awe again. And may May you work in our hearts and our minds and our lives so that we don't keep all that to ourselves, that we cannot help but proclaim it with passion, with power, with grace, and with truth. Help us in all of this, I pray. Thank you for what you've done. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.